Hi, everyone. Just a quick note from the three of us before the episode begins properly. What you're about to hear is the last recording we made with Don, and he passed away five days later. At the time of recording, he was obviously unwell with what he and the rest of us thought was a heavy cold, and none of us thought for a second that this illness would result in his passing. After he passed, his fiancée Anastasia called me to discuss the podcast situation at length, and she was absolutely adamant that he would have wanted his final episodes released, and that she also wanted them out in the world for people to hear. To respect your wishes, we are releasing this episode with minimal edits, so that Don is presented as he was, and his off-color humor shines through, with him even making a few presciently morbid jokes. We also wanted to honor his memory by getting to the end of season 13 with him, rather than re-recording our conversation on the final story without him. We know that many of our regular listeners developed a lot of affection for Don, and so we are making this announcement before the episode, as some of you may find it difficult to listen to this. With that in mind, we will be recapping all of our scores for this story, including Don's, in our Season 13 retrospective. On a final personal note, Don was a close friend to all three of us, and we really do miss him very dearly. Preparing this episode for release was tough for all of us, and we really did think long and hard as to whether we should release this one, but we all felt strongly that it should be out in the world. So with that in mind, sit back, and for the last time, enjoy the thoughts of all four of us on the Seeds of Doom. Watchers in the fourth dimension. Remember, no touch part could be dangerous. Scorby! Get done, bar! No, impossible. I'm fully booked for the next two centuries, but any time after then. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And you'll pay for this, animal fiends! This episode, it's an Avengers story in disguise as the thing from another world, in disguise as the Quatermass experiment, in disguise <laughs> as a Doctor Who story, with the Seeds of Doom. But first, Riley's going to take a look at the mail. Over to you, Riley. All right. Austin D. Patterson says, Hey, Watchers, I just discovered your podcast a few months ago, and I'm so glad I did. I just recently got all caught up with your episodes, and you guys have become my favorite podcast to listen to while cooking or driving or falling off my bike. We appreciate that. We hope we didn't make you fall off your bike. I love hearing people dissect art, especially with a sense of humor, and the way you guys pick apart the show is so funny and so artistically stimulating. Thanks. I'm a huge fan of the black and white era of Doctor Who, with Hartnell being my favorite Doctor and Galaxy 4 being my favorite story. Oh. Parentheses, yes, I'm very niche. <laughs> <laughs> so hearing you guys go through that whole era was incredibly fun, like getting to share my favorite show with my friends. I love listening to you guys and look forward to what's next. I give you guys 10 out of 10 running gags about the first Doctor <laughs> hitting someone with a rock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you nice. so much. Yes, Excellent rating, too. Hannah says, Hey, so I've been listening to your podcast for about a month or so, and it's been thoroughly enjoyable. It's made otherwise dull college days a lot more fun. I'm not in college today because I'm not feeling well, and I spent most of the day lying in bed listening to the podcast. Sometime during the Death to the Daleks episode, I started phasing in and out of consciousness. Long story short, I had some very strange Doctor Who-themed dreams narrated by you guys it was very strange <laughs> that is fascinating if you want to write in with more detail about that i would love to know how disturbing that was <laughs> definitely all right we have some feedback regarding our pyramids of mars episode alan seiler one of our lovely friends says i love sutek's understated subtle menace 
I think it's super interesting to compare Sutek with the other all-powerful being, Omega. Can you imagine how much different Sutek would be if he were played by Stephen Thorne instead of Gabriel Wolf? Hmm. Ooh, so campy. Yes. So over the top. Ian Whitaker says, Have you noticed near the end of episode two how the Doctor and Lawrence Scarman, when running away from the mummies and entering the lodge, accidentally shut the door on Sarah, leaving her outside? Sarah complains loudly and she thumps the door. A bit of acting funny business. I used to think that I had imagined the scene being a bit longer, showing more of a Sarah thumping the door when first transmitted in Australia in the 1970s. By the way, the scene is cut very abruptly in the current DVD slash Blu-ray versions. Then, in her autobiography, Elizabeth Sladen talks about, quote, knocking like mad on the door across several retakes and noticing that the jade stone in her ring had disappeared. Does anyone else remember this scene being longer? Well, Ian, unfortunately, this is the first time I saw it, so I wouldn't be able to tell you, but that is quite fascinating. So, Anthony. uh, Anthony, do you have an answer to this? I don't, but if any of our listeners remember that scene being longer, please do write in and Ian, we will get back to you if anyone does. Please, someone help this man. Yes, I'm wondering maybe Ian was laying in bed, fell asleep and started drifting in and out of consciousness. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Ed Kilbane says, really enjoyable discussion. I'm going to have to give this one a rewatch when I have the chance. Okay, well, please do. We always encourage people to watch more classic Who. Adam Wright says, I'm going to be honest and say I love this chunky mummy story. I like that term, (laughs) chunky mummy. I've already admitted that my favorite TARDIS team is Baker and Sladen. I like Pyramids of Mars for its horror elements. It didn't overstep in explaining Egyptian gods, so it isn't awkward. My two favorite moments are Sarah Jane being a badass and comfortable shooting a rifle, and the Doctor and Sarah doing the Marx Brother moment in episode four. I did get amused by the, quote, ass hand uh, <laughs> nine out of ten random TARDIS modules. Excellent. Andy Howells says, Hindsight is a wonderful thing. When I originally watched this back in 75, you would have needed a good memory to recall any returning actors, and when it was repeated in 76 as an omnibus, it was regarded as a treat. It's still a cracking story, balancing sci-fi and historical wonderfully. Fair enough. J.M. Casey, I didn't mind episode four at all. Yep. It repeats the same stupid traps from Death to the Daleks, but spends much less time on it and the stakes feel higher. And I must agree with Anthony, despite sympathizing very much with Julie's impatience with universe-destroying baddies, that Sutek is indeed awesome. Yes, it's the voice. (laughs) The things he says and the fact that he's both absolutely psychotic and nearly indestructible. I think he's one of the scariest outright villains yet. Lawrence was a great character and is a profoundly sad moment to see him get killed. Good friend R.L. Gray says, Nice coverage as always, gang. Just a few points from me. I think the mummies were built out to be geometrically swole proportions to make them more imposing, but it's definitely too much here. I'm with Tom. I can see how in a different costume an actor's body language might translate, but the mummy costumes are so huge and ungainly, I don't know if any of that would come across through. I shall mingle with the mummies, but I shan't linger is one of the great <laughs> batshit who lines ever. I would like Agreed. that on my tombstone, please. Yes, please. For that. <laughs> and whoever said they like villains who provide their own theme music is going to love Harrison Chase a few stories from now. Okay, a little. <laughs> We're going to talk about that later. Spoiler. More to come. Yes. Kieran James Evans. Whilst it's a good story, part four does let it down a bit. So eight out of 10 Easter egg time tunnels of death. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Oh, look, it's Michael Sheard in his third of six appearances in Classic US, Lawrence Scarman, whilst his brother is played by the guy from Power of the Daleks. 
Chris Burns says, yeah, this one seemed to balance a great team, the Doctor and Sarah Jane, with a great batting, great backdrops, Egyptian gods, I'm always a sucker for those, and a pretty good storyline. It's not perfect, but if I were asked for just one Who story to be locked in a time capsule, I think it would be this one. He also indicated oh. that he would slap his thigh and laugh when he would do that, so I don't know if he's you know, working on you there a bit, Julie, or I don't yeah. know. Nathan Law says, to me, the biggest flaw of this story is that they never show an establishing shot of the pyramids of Mars. When I watched this when I was six and for many years afterwards, I didn't understand how Sutek was on Mars when we see Skarman break into his tomb in the beginning. I just assumed that the place with the puzzle trap and where Sutek was held, prisoner were one and the same. So the whole time lag thing didn't make sense either. When I watched this one again as a late teen, I figured out that the puzzle traps were on the pyramid on Mars, and the time lag was due to the time it takes for light to travel from Mars to Earth, where Sutek's force field dropped. Whew! Okay, so <laughs> if they just had an establishing shot of the pyramid of Mars as the TARDIS arrived, it would have been a lot clearer. That's a lot of detail, but yes. I do agree with that. I didn't get yeah. that either as a kid. I think yeah. Nathan makes a really good point there. Yes. Beardo Beatnik says, 10 out of 10 gifts of death. Even the silent mummy robots are chewing scenery. <laughs> Why Excellent. isn't gifts of death a Christmas special? Yeah. Just asking. <laughs> it could be on the way. David Nordmeyer <laughs> says, my recommendation for someone who has never seen who. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and... Wrapping up, Paul Arthur, also known as Doctor Who 60s, 70s, and 80s, says, I'm with Julie on this one. It's Yay! far too overrated by fandom. The first episode is a cracker, but it swiftly goes downhill for me. The game show ending is particularly weak. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And that is the very long mail. Over to you, Anthony. Thank you, Riley. Some new voices in there, which is awesome. As a reminder, we really do love hearing all of your feedback, comments, thoughts, and questions. And as you've just heard, we do try to read out as many of them as possible. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D or via email at Watchers4D at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, so please do leave us a message. And this episode, we see the return of the behind-the-scenes team responsible for Terror of the Zygons in the season 13 finale, The Seeds of Doom. But it wasn't always meant to be like this. Originally, the story slated to close out the season was Bob Baker and Dave Martin's The Hand of Fear, an idea that was submitted to script editor Robert Holmes at the end of May 1975 and commissioned as a six-part serial in mid-June. Douglas Camfield was quickly contracted to direct the serial, having most recently directed the aforementioned Terror of the Zygons. As development on The Hand of Fear continued, producer Philip Hinchcliffe became increasingly concerned that the problems with the serial would not be resolved before it was scheduled to enter production. Holmes was busy with rewrites on The Brain of Morbius, and it wasn't until late September 1975 that he was able to start work on the Bristol Boys scripts, when he quickly came to share Hinchcliffe's concerns. It was agreed that The Hand of Fear would have to be postponed and redeveloped for season 14. With a severe time crunch on their hands, Hinchcliffe and Holmes sought permission from Bill Slater, the BBC's head of serials, to shorten season 13 by two episodes, which would allow them to replace The Hand of Fear with a four-part serial already under development, either Eric Pringle's The Angarth or another serial from Robert Banks Stewart, writer of Terror of the Zygons. Slater denied the request, and Hinchcliffe and Holmes decided to ask Stewart to expand his serial to six episodes. He had to work quickly as Camfield had already begun pre-production, including location scouting. This led to Camfield playing a significant part in the development of the serial. 
To expand the serial from the originally planned four parts to six, Stewart and Holmes agreed that the first two episodes should form a prologue set in the Antarctic, and for this they drew inspiration from the 1951 film The Thing from Another World. And the whole serial drew inspiration from the Quatermass experiment in which an astronaut transformed into a plant creature due to an alien infection. To the production team's relief, Stewart delivered his scripts within just three weeks. Despite that, the production of the serial was not without drama. Original designer Jeremy Bear fell ill during work on the serial and only completed work on the sets for the Antarctic camp. Roger Murray Leach was then drafted in to replace him. We'd previously seen Bear designing season 9's The Mutants, while Murray Leach had of course previously designed The Ark in Space, The Sontaran Experiment, Revenge of the Cybermen, and Planet of Evil. After the first recording block, actor Kenneth Gilbert, who played Dunbar, contracted chickenpox during recording, causing him to be absent until the final three recording blocks. Camfield was unhappy with one element of the script, specifically Chase's demise, in which the Doctor originally threw him into the composter, and Camfield had the script rewritten to have Chase accidentally fall in. And then finally, Tom Baker was apparently very verbally dismissive about Stuart's scripts while on set, unaware that Stuart was sitting in the viewing gallery listening in. <laughs> Robert Bank Stewart later confronted Tom Baker and received an apology. The story also marked the final appearance of Unit in the 1970s, which had been a staple of the show since 1968's The Invasion. Hinchcliffe and Holmes had slowly been reducing the organization's role in the show, and this was brought into sharp focus in The Seeds of Doom by the exclusion of any of Unit's recurring characters, with the roles normally filled by Lethbridge Stewart and Benton being given to Major Beresford and Sergeant Henderson. I've already mentioned a few of the behind-the-scenes figures, but joining Camfield Bear and Murray Leach were Janet Radinkovich, making her very last appearance as production unit manager, Jeffrey Burgeon providing incidental music, having previously worked on Terror of the Zygons, and last but not least, Barbara Lane returns to provide costumes, having most recently worked on The Android Invasion. Finally, one last problem. The transmission of the serial was nearly disrupted when the master tape from part one was misplaced, causing Hinchcliffe to have to consider re-editing the rest of the serial to have something available to broadcast. Fortunately, it was found just in time for its broadcast <laughs> on the 31st of January 1976. The other five episodes were then broadcast on the subsequent Saturdays through the 6th of March. The end of this serial brought season 13 to a close, and like the brain of Morbius before it, the serial once again drew the ire of Mary Whitehouse, who oh. criticised the violence of the serial, <laughs> particularly focusing on the use of a Molotov cocktail. But her crusade is only just beginning, and this will not be the last time that she will trade blows with the Doctor Who production team. Yes, that Molotov cocktail, let me tell you. <laughs> <clears throat> More on that later. That wraps up our behind-the-scenes segment, and so we move on to the short summary, which is with me this episode. In the creeping crinoid from the shores of Shoggoth. Wait, no, that's not right. Um, the Seeds of Death. Yeah. Wait, no, the Seeds of Doom. That's it. In the Seeds of Doom, a man is infected by space broccoli found in the Antarctic, and the doctor suggests amputating his P... Wait, no, not that. His arm. The doctor suggests amputating his arm to save his life. That doesn't happen, and then Scorby sings one-track lover before blowing up the base. Then we're off to England, where a second pod of space broccoli is nurtured by a plants' rights activist and infects another person. The Doctor and Sarah spend a few episodes running around trying to avoid the mansion full of aggressive lunatics before Unit come in and save the day by blowing everything up. It may not actually be Garth Marenghi's dark place, but it's still pretty good. <laughs> oh. 
Hmm. All right, part one, let's talk about it. Okay, guys, I have to start with saying that even though it is a refreshing change to not have our villain's motivation be world conquest again, the engine of this entire six-part story is because one guy really loves plants. (laughs) That's it. He's just horny for plants. That is the entire reason why this keeps going. And he wants something that no one else has. Well, you missed that one thing. He's also a rich multimillionaire. Yeah. That's the most believable thing out of the entire serial. Rich idiot will do anything, including destroy the world for his own selfish needs. (laughs) Cuts a little close to real life, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. But hey, we start in the Antarctic. Yeah, where something is found in the ice. Could it be a seed of doom? Or could it be something that... I don't know, gets dug up by a couple scientists, has the ability to mimic other people. Oh, wait again, yes, I'm making another thing reference to Doctor Who. You know, (laughs) I just want to put a little bit of a public safety warning out there. (laughs) If you find something buried in the ice of Antarctica, leave it alone. Just leave it alone. (laughs) It never turns out well. As the doctor says to Dunbar, remember, no touch pod. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, no touch pod, one of my favorites. What I really love is that two of these guys are rocking some really good beards. Yeah. I had a feeling you would enjoy that, Julie. <laughs> I don't know why. I've done beard counts before. It's <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, man. And we also, sorry to keep bringing it back to Chase, but laying it on pretty thick right off the bat. There's really no question what side he's on or what type of person he is, especially because once again, black leather gloves with a suit. At all times. Always a bad sign. Yeah. I was getting Christopher Walken feelings (laughs) a little bit. Yeah, maybe. Like from A View to a Kill, his Mm -hmm. villain from that Bond film. I can see that. I think the story definitely gets some cam count points from him alone. Oh Oh my God. (laughs) I wouldn't have necessarily done them in this episode. (laughs) No. But yes, but yes. We'll come back to the allocation of points later, but they're a coming. (laughs) All right, let's dive right in because we're ignoring a lot of this beginning. I really like that visual of when the seed pod opened. Mm Mm-hmm. And the thing shot out and latched on. I thought that was really, really well done. It was. Actually, there's a lot of directional choices that were made that I thought were really well done. This definitely would have suffered with a uh, lesser director. That is for certain. Yeah. It's such a shame this is Camfield's last outing. Oh, it is? Yeah. Uh, I saw that little write-up. Oh, man, that's a great story. You should tell it, Anthony. (laughs) (laughs) Well, basically, during this, he got really stressed, as he did in various previous ones. And his wife basically said, you're done. Not having you doing any more. And if I recall, the actual location where they had that conversation was pretty dramatic. I think it was outside of Ely Cathedral in England. And he went into the cathedral and swore on the high altar that he would not do another Doctor (laughs) Who story. And he kept that oath. Oh my. (laughs) But it is a huge loss because he's fantastic. Yes, he is. And stemming off of the infection, did anyone else get any green death vibe off of all the green covering of skin out of this? Especially that first shot Mm -hmm. because it looked more like slime on his face than anything. And then all of a sudden all the leafy parts started growing. I'm like, oh, nope, that's different. And which leads me to my question for Anthony 
Did this one hit you with that body horror fear when you were younger? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, go. yes. Definitely did. I didn't see this one probably until I was late childhood, but not yet a teenager. So it wasn't quite as bad as seeing something like The Green Death when I was six. Right. But it still gave me the heebie-jeebies, for sure. It also kind of reminded me of uh, Creepshow. Oh. Jordy Verrill. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Stephen King's fantastic <laughs> acting performance. Yes, except no one in this camp police says, meteor shit, which was kind of disappointing. But... <laughs> but overall, Winlet's transformation is astonishingly quick. Particularly if you've never seen this one before and you don't know it's effectively a two-parter and a four-parter, you'd almost expect it to be drawn out a little more to fill out six parts and to build up the tension. But because of the way this is structured, it's got to be quick. It happens in, what, a few hours? Yeah. Not even, like, 24 hours? And Winlet's not even being fed raw meat, unlike Keeler later. <laughs> Poor Keeler. Well, because he didn't grow up to be the size of a mountain. Yeah, he would have been if... if well, we'll get back to that at the end of part two. But yeah, I thought the notion of carnivorous vegetation was very triffid. Yes, yes, there. That's a good reference there, Day of the Triffids. I was going to mention that, except that they don't have the added strangeness of everyone going blind from a meteor, I believe. That's how the original mm -hmm. story goes. But I thought that the transformation scenes, both in our first episode and the later episode with Keeler, for some reason, they seem particularly dark. And I don't just mean the lighting. I mean, <laughs> they seem darker than usual. Maybe it's because of there was a lot more communication with these people as they're transforming. And it kind of really gave this disturbing kind of like terminally ill or deathbed kind of feel to it that made it seem very dark to me. Well, yeah, it wasn't like they were turning into a monster. They were being devoured by something. Yeah, yeah. There's something about this and I'll bring it up later, but there's something about this serial where I just felt there was a very, and maybe it's because, you know, trying to put people through a composter and tearing them to shreds might be part of it too. But there's a dark tone shift here in this serial compared to previous ones. Or maybe this one's just a lot more severe. And it also helped by some of the quotes and things. Yes, I kept a running list of quotes. One of them being, a human being whose blood is turning into vegetable soup. <laughs> That's just... <laughs> really disturbing if you actually think about it <laughs> yes and then also you have chase is just more misanthropic than i think any character on the show has ever been he doesn't just have no care or no concern for human beings he actively hates them and then you add on top of that just how nasty a lot of the other characters are i don't oh, think Scorby. we've seen yeah. yeah, we have not seen someone as brutal as Scorby in a long time. And the Doctor's reaction to all of this is the Doctor's more violent than usual. Yes, he is. Mm -hmm. Maybe that lady that wrote in was right. Maybe I should start writing in about this. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you had to write in. You could just say it. We do have well, a I, podcast, Riley. I must be heard, BBC, by <laughs> writing to you. <laughs> I did think it was hilarious that the doctor thought that it might have been possible to save Winlet if you amputated his arm when the guy's already covered in green yeah, stuff like, that I think was meant to resemble leaves. Almost all of him was covered at that point. Like, well, maybe if you'd done that a few hours ago. It's actually mentioned in an eighth doctor audio at a later time that it would have to be done in the first 20 seconds of infection. Oh, so geez. they kind of retconned that. That's a little fast. Uh, yeah. Okay. 
Sure. Sanchez got away, fortunately, then, in <laughs> Dark Place. Also, I just sit there and think about one of the things that didn't make as much sense to me is they travel in pairs, like policemen. But why in the <laughs> world do Kryonites, why would they travel in pairs? That it, I don't know. It's They're fine. Lonely? Convenient. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe to increase the chances of infection? I don't know. No, I was thinking like more. Why would you just uh, have one or two? Why wouldn't you have a whole like slew of them? Supply chain issues. <laughs> That's the best I got. Convenient. <laughs> Leave the space avocados alone. <laughs> <laughs> we end the episode with Winlet getting up, wandering around the base, and giving Mobley the frontal shoulder rub of death. And that is our yes. cliffhanger. All right. It made sense that one of them had to die. I then got very sad that we find out that both of them die. Well, all three of them, I guess, the originals who were there. And it made me very sad. Yeah, they're the Norwegian camp of this story. I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> and we get the really dynamic duo of Keeler and Scorby in this one. Scorby Dorby Doo! <laughs> <laughs> I'm just glad somebody did that. I love Scorby. He is terrible. He is brutal. He is mean. He's only in it for himself. He's just thoroughly nasty. And I kind of love him. He's a great character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's more interesting than some of the others that we've had in the past. And we actually touch on like who he was, like a mercenary and all these other things. And it touches upon different aspects of why he does what he does. And I think that's a little bit more than we get most of the time. And Julie, that's an interesting point, because that was something that you started seeing kind of in the 70s, were British guys who failed to get into the army or had retired from the army would go off and fight in Africa and the Middle East as mercenaries. And they would just normally, you know, too much testosterone, overly aggressive idiots. And yeah. that's basically Scorby. So he's a real character in that aspect. And he's paired with Keeler, which is calling back on an old Doctor Who tradition that I haven't seen in a long time. The person who's working for the villain, but he's spineless and he knows what he's doing is wrong, but he just won't stand up against them. He's a botanist. What is he going to do? <laughs> we saw a lot of that in the Troughton era. Yes, we did. He just needs to go away. I mean, is it, I guess it is hard to get botanist jobs. I bet Chase pays well, but oh, yes. poor Keeler. I felt really, really bad for him all throughout. Just such, he doesn't get really any sort of turn or anything. He doesn't have a moment. He mm -mm. pretty much just suffers and oy. it was definitely one of those where at some point I was like, Keeler's probably going to be the one who gets attacked by the second one, isn't he? <laughs> they did a very easy job of foreshadowing that one. And it makes it worse when it does happen because he knows exactly what's happening to him. Right. As it's happening. Yeah. Which is also like we were talking about before, it's particularly disturbing to have like that knowledge. Yeah. Like that. He's already seen it. All that fear and apprehension. But hey, what about Dunbar? That's the asshole that's helped get this all going. <sighs> Yeah, and that's just frustration at not climbing the ladder in the civil service, so he's selling confidential right. state information to a <laughs> megalomaniac millionaire. Immediately, as soon as he finds out about it. Uh, Is he the worst in this story, do you guys think, or do you think it's Scorby or Chase? It's Chase. Yeah, it's Chase. I think Dunbar at least has a change of heart. He realizes that what he did was wrong. I think Scorby is worse because he knows what's going on and he just doesn't care. I think... Chase is awful, but Chase, I think, is mentally disturbed from the beginning, I think. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. 
Scorby is a, is a pragmatist. He should know better. I want to talk about the crinoid here, because did anyone notice that it was just an axon painted green? <laughs> no, I did not. Yeah. It literally was. They took the costume out of storage, painted it green, oh my goodness. and slapped it wow. on as the crinoid. But originally they planned to make some changes to it. They were going to put on some tufts of hair to kind of indicate that the mutation wasn't fully complete. But for whatever reason, that didn't happen. That's fine. Yeah, it worked. One thing that I like about probably Dougie's direction is he makes chase scenes more interesting than what they should be. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, it's a combination of Dougie and our music guy. I love them running around in the snow. I think it's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, Jeffrey Bergen. He's good. He's really good with the music. He is very good. All right, there are basically two other things I want to touch on. Firstly, the Doctor getting increasingly angry at people continuing to call the crinoid Winlet because everyone keeps humanizing it. And yet later he keeps calling the other crinoid Keeler. Yeah, bloody hypocrite. <laughs> I mean, the Doctor does do that kind of thing fairly often. So yes, the Doctor is a hypocrite. We know this. Doctor's not always the nicest guy around, but... He's downright ornery in this one. And for good reason. I mean... You had to hang around chasing Scorby all the time. I mean, I'd be really angry too. <laughs> I think part of where I struggle with the Doctor in this serial is Tom Baker plays it as if this is the most worrying thing he's ever seen. And yet we've already seen him do that in Planet of Evil. We've seen him do that in Pyramids of Mars. This is the third time this season. It's like, come on, guys. That's okay. At least he's taking the threat seriously. <laughs> I also, compared to some of the others, once you see a giant creature that is larger than a manor, well, okay, I can kind of see why the Doctor is a little bit concerned. Oh, come on. You have Sutek, the destroyer, who wants to destroy the entire universe. Oh, yeah, but that's your entire universe bullshit again. <laughs> I can't relate to that. It's too big. That's fair. You know, give me a manor. Give me, at most, a country. <laughs> Once you oh the whole universe, fuck that. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Your scale's too big. Yeah. I do agree, and I'm not meaning to get too off track, but that was always an issue I had with New Who, was every season finale just tried to get bigger and bigger on the last one until, mm -hmm. as you say, Don, the universe gets destroyed and rebooted and all that kind of stuff. Just, yeah, come it's on, much guys, more relatable if, if the audio, oh no, they're going to get kicked out of their apartment. I can yeah. relate to that. I can't relate to the entire universe blowing up. And once it's done, I'm not going to care anyway. Because I'll be dead. It's fine. Back on track. The other thing, obviously, Scorby goes ahead and sets his explosives. Keeler's nervous. And then Keeler attacks Scorby, which has to be the most wimpy thing I've ever seen. But he tried. Homie, you should know your strengths. And attacking trained mercenaries is definitely not one. Once again, botanist. Yeah. I think that when Keeler was building up to that moment, he was like, he could hear the Rocky theme playing in his head. <laughs> <laughs> so we get the explosion. The airplane Sarah's is Sarah's rescued just in time. Right. And the crinoid's locked in the power block as it explodes. That's our cliffhanger. And we're on to part three. Found in the snow. How long was she in the snow? And how did she not have frostbite? That's exactly <laughs> what's in my notes. So yes, same question. <laughs> But we get uh, video. We're on video. Outside shots with video again, which has some issues later on. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was bad transfer or something, but anytime there's machine gun flashes, I could literally see like white lines cut across the video. Yeah, we saw a lot of that in the Pertwee era. 
Uh, I didn't actually see that much in the part we are. This one was very, very obvious to me. Yeah. Yeah. There were some, and I think it was about five. The mm-hmm. quality was questionable. Yeah. And there was, I'm trying to remember what the reason for all of the video recording rather than doing it on film was. I know it was Dougie's choice. I just can't remember why he decided to do it. It doesn't matter. Regardless, the doctor comes in and is like, I need to be taken to this place. And they get the chauffeur from Mr. Well, considerably from Dunbar through Mr. Chase, whatever it is. And I'm like, why didn't you just steal the car after you all got out of the car? But okay, let's go on this little chase sequence. Because that would be theft, Julie. (laughs) Well, they ended up stealing it anyway. Yeah, true. I love the doctor's (laughs) disguise. (laughs) Chauffeur hat. (laughs) Puts the chauffeur hat and coat on, but continues wearing the scarf. But before we get too deep into that, we need to talk about <gasps> Amelia Ducar. Yep. Oh, incidentally, quarry. Yes. Quarry alert. And and woman count. And woman count. So <laughs> one extra on each. I love her. She's spectacular. I love her so much. I love how ditzy and like just how much she plays up the fact that she's a little old lady, but she's not. And I love that so much. There are several little old ladies throughout the Tom Baker era who I think are iconic, and she is the first one. This is how you can place women into serials where they don't have to do a lot of running around and things like that, but they can just be just snarky old ladies, and I love (laughs) them. I'm very happy with your addition to the story. I do question exactly how we get there. Why would a painting be in the boot of that car? Because Chase wanted that painting, remember? And then he had the painting Uh, because it was his car. Okay, I just thought it's just very happenstance for it to be in the car that was used to drive off to kill veterans. Yeah, because that was Mr. Chase's chauffeur. Okay, all right. Yep. Just kind of lucky. Could have you know, already made that painting delivery, but I was like, all right, going to pick up a painting while dropping off these people in a quarry to try to kill them. But, you know. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, one trip. You got to make it efficient. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But this is a really random thing, but she is the one who says that Chase is the one who owes her money and it immediately like shows Chase and it shows him finding out that a chauffeur is in the hospital. There's like this flute music that comes in that and like the screen just like pans on his face finding out and it's wonderful. Yeah, the music was quite good. I enjoyed it, and it did get a little odd. I think later on we had the mm-hmm. jet fighter theme for the unit fighter. <laughs> that was a little odd, but I, I dug it. I was with it. It's funny. With the setup for this episode, you've got a bonkers old lady coming in to basically give the tip. You've got a kidnapping. There are government conspiracies going on, and then you get traipsing around outside a country house being shot at by private security. You can kind of tell that Robert Banks Stewart never quite got over only writing two episodes of The Avengers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and also we have to, going into The Avengers, and this also goes into Bond, when we have our first meeting between Chase and the Doctor and Sarah Jane in his glorious greenhouse slash conservative, what do you want to call it? You have this line. A doctor says, how do you do? Have you met Miss Smith? She's my best friend. Chase, is she? And still beautifully intact, I see. If that's not a Bond villain line, I don't know what is. He is spectacularly campy. He's quite a feat as well as he's giving them the house. He's got this... Gives a tour. That's in four. That's in part four. Wait. No, he does a full-on tour in part three. Is it in part three? It is in part three. I just remember you get the tour 
You get the history of the house. He plays his drumless ambient DJ music <laughs> for uh-huh. the plants. It's yep. very much like, can it, you just tell me your evil plan and then kill like, me, please? <laughs> most people play Mozart or Beethoven to their plans, but no, 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 no. He was like, I wanted to play with this machine and come up with the most odd music I could ever come up with. Yes. It's yeah. his ambient slash synth wave album that he's uh, working on. And that has got to be the most villainous thing yet. Everyone know huge house being a host of people at your house, that is like the most villainous thing you can do. Like, hey, listen to this. I wrote this. <laughs> yeah, don't give up your day job, buddy. This is my contractual obligation album. <laughs> I owed them another disc, and this is what they're getting. So screw the record company. Yeah, all I wrote when he was up there DJing was, I cannot take Chase seriously. <laughs> I cannot take this villain seriously. He spent too much time hanging out with Lou Reed. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> When the Doctor and Sarah are being led out by Scorby and they decide to jump him, does it look like the Doctor tries to break Scorby's neck? It yes. sounds like it bro- he broke his neck. Yeah. That was amazing. Okay, now here's the thing. We've had several shoulder rubs of death. <laughs> this is just a tack chiropractic. That's what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, his neck never felt better after the Doctor was done. That's why he was so surprised. <laughs> but we do get more chasing music as I like to call it, and a random statue of Queen Victoria, (laughs) as one has on their property. You Brits are weird. (laughs) (laughs) No contest. (laughs) We are. I'll wear that as a badge of honor. Thank you, Julie. Oh, man. And yeah, of course, Sarah Jane becomes the damsel in distress because Sarah Jane always has to become the damsel in distress. And as she gets there, all right, so the doctor helps her over the wall, they get split up, and when the guard catches her, he is unnecessarily sadistic in what he says to her. He just goes, so near and yet so far. You didn't think you'd get away, did you? That was unnecessary. Oh, come on. He's been waiting his whole life to say something (laughs) like that. (laughs) Exactly. All right. So her arm is held to the table as the pod is starting to germinate and the doctor's watching from above. Cliffhanger and part four. Yeah, okay. So we had our Bond moment. We had our Avengers moment. Now we're going to a Batman story. The doctor crashes through a glass (laughs) ceiling. And when I thought about that more, Chase is basically poison ivy. (laughs) Wow. Wow. You're not wrong. (laughs) And I love his response. And what do you do for an encore, doctor? I win. <laughs> yes. Uh, Wait, I need to do that more Batman. I, I, win. I win. I think in this scene is where he Chase sets up a pattern of asking why he's surrounded by idiots yeah. and calling people fools. <laughs> like, well, because you hired them. That's And yet at the same time, when I look at Scorby and the two guards that are in this one, they're more competent than some of the other lackeys that mm-hmm. I've seen in Doctor yeah. Who, especially Scorby. Scorby knows what's up. And the pod in its germination gets Keeler. And he's the only semi-decent man in Chase's entourage. So that's really sad. They were smart enough to tie him up, though. Those scenes are heart-wrenching, though. He is begging to be taken to hospital and Chase is just like, oh, we'll take care of you here. Yeah, because he wants to observe you and kind of worship you. (laughs) Creep. And it's also at this point that we get introduced to the compost machine. Yes, uh, that is our other Bond villain moment. That is when we fully get the, do you expect me to talk? No, Doctor, I expect you to die. 
Yeah. And Scorby is almost aroused by the compost machine. <laughs> oh, Did anyone God. else pick up on that? That is nauseating. Jeez. I mean, it's not so much the machine itself. It's obviously just the way it will kill the doctor. But he's clearly enjoying every moment of this unnecessary violence. <laughs> And it's almost a little bit campy. And this story is so odd in that it balances being extremely grim and brutal, Mm -hmm. but also quite campy at the same time. Maybe the campiness is there to soften it a bit so people don't take it as seriously. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. once again, we're dealing with that Chase may do and say horrible things, but he also says completely ridiculous things at the same time and acts ridiculous too we still have his moment later where he decides to do his meditation and then runs out of the (laughs) runs out of the room yelling at everyone calling them all animal fiends like a teenager (laughs) that is upset with their parents as he bolts out of the room well the disturbing composting machine and i believe that is where we balance the score for this serial and sarah jane saves the doctor Yes, which is very, very Avengers because it was so often Emma Peel or Tara King rescuing Steed rather than the other way around. But we also get a reintroduction to Amelia Ducat because I thought she was going to be like a one episode Mm -hmm. character and then she returned and I was like, oh, yes, please. And I was really excited. She is wonderful here. The way that she negotiates over the money's owed. (laughs) And walks away with a thousand pounds. I mean, absolute legend. (laughs) So wonderful. So, so wonderful. And I was just like, yep, you just be your crazy weird ass self, man. I love you. (laughs) And then she gets back to the car and you see that not only was she there for money, but also getting a little intel about what's happening. And then Dunbar decides to have, you know, change his heart and try to solve the mess that he's made. Well, the interesting thing, too, is when she gets in the car, you obviously find out that she's not as weird and ditzy as she seemed. So that's first off. So she was playing everyone the whole time, acting like a little lady who's losing her mind. So that part I absolutely love. (laughs) We'll get more into it in, I believe, part five, because I think she shows up there. But... (laughs) She just wants in on everything. She's like, I want to do all this spy stuff. It seems great. Let's do more. She turns into an adrenaline junkie. (laughs) Be like her when you're 75, Julie. Yes. One can only hope. I did want to talk about Sarah Jane sneaking into the cottage and talking to Keela. And then he starts yelling at her when she won't loosen his bonds before Hargreaves the butler shows up with a plate of raw meat. Yikes. The only thing I can say it's head. Yeah, I did want to just bounce back to Sarah rescuing the doctor because there is a moment of kind of humor in that where she initially hits the wrong button and it speeds up. (laughs) One of the few light moments of this story. Yeah, that was similar to the thing that she did in which one was it? Android invasion with the um, Mm -hmm. the disorientation machine. (laughs) Right. And we even get Dunbar begging Chase to stop the experiment. Literally everyone is trying to persuade him to stop the experiment and he just won't. And when Dunbar leaves, we get my favorite line (laughs) of the story, which is where he just yells, Scorby, get Dunbar. (laughs) And I can't quite explain why I love it so much, but I really love that line. Uh, It was the delivery, I say. It's Chase just is... So wonderfully overdramatic. And it's also when we find that how massive the coronoid got just because it ate some meat. <laughs> very, very quickly. I mean, it goes from axon phase to giant wall of crinoid rushing towards the camera, which is our cliffhanger. 
I think he's also absorbing some mass from the plants around there. That's the only way I can justify that. Well, they also mentioned later how he kind of is able to communicate with the plants. And... As Dunbar encounters the crinoid, at this point, and it becomes clear at the beginning of part five, but I wasn't quite sure whether he was squished by it or eaten by it. Yes. It becomes clear he was just squished. <laughs> but at first I was like, did it just eat him? It might have gotten no. like a chunk out of him. A couple of nibbles? Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Just a taste. <laughs> nom, 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 nom. <laughs> nom, 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 nom. <laughs> By the way, Don and Riley, are you happy with some night shooting here? Yes, yeah. I am. I am very happy with that. It looked fine. They should have done it more in previous serials. Yeah, I was yeah. just thinking after Pyramids of Mars, I figured you guys would I be mean... pleased. All right, on to part five. And Scorby is astonished. <laughs> <laughs> no, is it in five where we have them locked in the cabin together? Yes. That's exactly where we're yeah. at. Yeah. This is where I love how much anger the doctor shows here, because I just feel like this is the only time I've seen him really feel like things might be getting too out of hand for him beyond his control. And while still having to debate Scorby about what the plan forward would be, I love his anger in this. And him and Scorby just going toe to toe and effectively yelling at each other before having this very uneasy detente where the doctor asks, can I rely on you, Scorby? And Scorby responds with, for the moment. <laughs> you don't quite know whether or not Scorby is going to give up the doctor to the crinoid. All the wild giant Audrey 2 from Little Shop of Horror <laughs> Vines come through the window. I also love that it's like, can you make something explode? Because the doctor just wants something that can go boom, boom. <laughs> okay. Also, like, why a Molotov cocktail? Like, there are other things go boom, usually with more effect than a Molotov cocktail. I guess just with what's probably available in the cottage. I don't That's know. That's what I got from it. I suppose. I do want to talk about things going on around this because we've got action with Sir Colin and with Unit and specifically Amelia just sitting there smoking her cigarette <sighs> in Sir Colin's office, which is fucking iconic. <laughs> <laughs> you do you, Amelia, and to hell with Sir Colin. She should be in charge, not Sir Colin. <laughs> Although I think one of my favorite things was when they were talking and she mentioned something like disparaging of civil servants. Yes. Oh, yeah. And he was like, <laughs> I am one. <laughs> and she just kind of gives him this wry grin. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love her. I want to be her. <laughs> Let's talk about Unit because the Brigadier, surprise, surprise, is in Geneva. That's got to be a euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a drunk tank. I mean, we've seen him in episodes when he's wearing his silk pajamas. So, <laughs> yeah. We end up with Major Beresford, who is distinctly less cuddly than the Brigadier. They don't have, like, personalities. I almost wonder if that's the point. Because if they're trying to phase Unit out, they don't want us having the characters that we love anymore. They just want to get us used to the fact that we're going to get these faceless people like Major Beresford and Sergeant Henderson when they do show up. And I don't want them. I want Lethbridge Stewart and Benton. I mean, if you're going to call it Unit, yeah. Otherwise, it just doesn't seem right. I would rather not have Unit if I'm not going to get the Brigadier and Benton. It would have been better if they had been like, we're just going to call the Marines in. There's a unit we have at home. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And of course, this is the last appearance of Unit in the 1970s. So, womp womp. Womp womp womp. Julie, did you catch Scorby's casual misogyny? 
I mean, it kind of rolls off of him in waves. So which particular thing? When the guards run away and he says, like a bunch of women. Oh. Uh, and Sarah calls him out because go Sarah. Oh, yeah. Yes, it was like the slight misogyny, but just the way that Sarah Jane handled it was superb. I loved that. That's good. Also, you can't really blame the guards for leaving. Yeah. Oh, no, I would have legged it out of there. They're not going to get paid for that. Their <laughs> boss is insane. Like, screw this. I hope they got direct deposit. <laughs> <laughs> right. And Chase is just going crazier and crazier. This is where we soon get the scene of him <laughs> talking to his plants, <laughs> sounding distinctly megalomaniacal, and he's in some kind of trance. And at this point, I was left wondering, is it the crinoid talking through him or is he just batshit crazy? Spoiler, it is the crinoid. We just don't know that yet. Yeah, and he's meditating on the dance floor from Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> and he's just sitting there saying, all plant eaters must die. I don't know how I felt about the whole being possessed by the crinoid. I don't know how much I really like that because it's like a weird thing to kind of tack on to something yes. that the crinoid does. It's also weird where they bring it up as a possibility, but they don't really confirm it either way. It just seems kind of like a red herring. But I did enjoy the wonderfully soothing scenes of Chase going out for a little nature photography. <laughs> yeah, that was enjoyable. It just felt very out of place. But I think maybe there in the writing process, while being alone and taking its photo or something, like maybe there was some sort of originally in, the, in an earlier draft, like a mind transference thing or something. I don't know. But he definitely kind of went off the deep end after taking the photos. Yeah. I'm still not sure if he was actually possessed or it was just giving into his already existing plant obsession. I have a question about him. Do you think he's one of those people who refuses to eat any plants? Most of the people you come across like that these days is because it's not manly. So I just like to imagine him of having a meal of a steak with a side of another steak. <laughs> the Swanson. Just such unusual character. It's, once again, that was the concept like, okay, his motivation for wanting the seeds is that he just really, really loves plants a lot. Really? <laughs> That's it? Yeah. He's a rich guy that has never not gotten what he wanted. It was something to add to his collection. Because I said, I find that whole thing completely believable. Absolutely. One thing that I wanted to add that's not to do so much with the characters is the special effects with the plants moving. Yeah, it's good. It's really well done. I loved all of that. Those things were some of the best effects I've seen in Doctor Who in a while. I loved it. Dougie Camfield, I'm telling you. Hey, Dougie. We will miss him. Yes. Teach me how to Dougie. Teach me, teach me how to Dougie. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I want to talk about them taking the plants outside and then very delicately placing them down. So dumb. <laughs> I know from a practical perspective why it was done like that was because they were probably on loan from some garden centre somewhere <laughs> yeah. and weren't actually bought. But, you know, if they're potentially about to be controlled by a giant space vegetable and <laughs> kill you, you would probably just throw them out the door rather than delicately place them down. They didn't want to face the wrath of the BBC, man. Maybe they were worried about pissing the crinoid off even more. Could be. It's the best I've got. It was also like so far away from the door I would have just been like, out the door, out the door, out the door. Okay, slam the door shut. Yeah. And that gives Chase the opportunity to lock them out with the crinoid looming. And that's our cliffhanger. I actually love that cliffhanger, even though it's just Chase's face. I'm like, yep, I get it. Great ending shot right there. On to part six. And I do want to say the crinoid looming over the house is actually really good CSO. Yes, mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. Yep. It looked great. 
All right. One of the things I have to say. So they're using a laser gun. Sure, whatever. It's fine. Then one of them says, aim for the chest. Where the hell is the chest? (laughs) Aim for the stock. The stock. (laughs) The other thing about that, and I feel like as a Brit who has lived in the US for 12 years at this point, I do need to call this out. Major Beresford has terrible teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Truly awful. He is not helping these stereotypes. Come on, dude. And they had so many close-ups of them as well. (laughs) Yeah, unnecessary. (laughs) And speaking of unit folks, Sergeant Henderson, he's no Benton. Well, first off, it ends horribly for Sergeant Henderson. It does. I mean, I'm glad that's not Benton, but yeah. Yeah, there's a part of me that's like, man, they should have brought in Benton. And then I see what happened to Sergeant Henderson. I'm like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't Benton. Things just seem to constantly get worse in this. In this episode, you got Henderson being fed to the composter. Scorby trying to run and getting drowned by pond weeds. It just seems like it's all going to end really badly for planet Earth at this point. Yeah, and it's one of those things where what clever thing is the doctor going to do to like get them out? There's actually not a clever thing that the doctor's going to do to get them out, and that's surprising. Yeah, it really is just unit making it go boom boom. <laughs> <laughs> what was he said? Is Scorby bombs and bullets around the edge of everything? <laughs> you need missiles. Sometimes you need missiles. (laughs) Nice. There was a scene with Scorby before he passed, and yes, I'm going to say passed, where he has this very short, it feels like a monologue, where he goes on about saying, that laser gun was useless, wasn't it? Look, I've never relied on anybody just myself. (laughs) I've always got myself out of trouble. And he goes on and he mentions Africa, the Middle East, and he goes on and on. Did anyone else just expect a giant vine to just come down and like just crush him right in the middle of that monologue i was actually expecting it more to kind of carry him out like drag him out like zombie style through the window (laughs) i don't know i like the way because he just sort of he lost it yeah Mm -hmm. he just couldn't hang anymore and he's like i'll go out the door (laughs) and uh nope When Sarah goes looking for Henderson and she encounters Chase in the compost room, he is just unhinged. Sergeant Henderson has become part of the garden. I mean, yikes. Oh yeah, that was delightfully creepy. (laughs) Yeah, a whole load of nope. I'm sure that will inspire his next new musical piece. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, well, the boom boom. We got the jets flying overhead with a very interesting theme and... And they're yelling chop suey. Uh, yeah. yeah. That jaunty Royal Air Force theme. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> no, no, no. That did not work for me. It was one of those where I didn't particularly care for it, but I think it fit the scene, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. Well, it's like in so many things when I sit there watching a movie and I just hear the British Grenaders and I'm like, oh my God, we're listening to this again. Like, I get it. Everyone knows how that goes. But oh, my God, do we have to hear it every single time? They could have just played general military music and I guess it would have been fine. I actually found it pretty interesting that Sarah was put in the composter because it would have been incredibly grim if that's how they wrote her out. And it was actually after recording this was when Elizabeth Sladen informed Hinchcliffe and Holmes that she wanted to leave. That would have been a really bleak ending for her. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if she'd told them before, I imagine that could have happened. And there would have been a riot. Uh, of course the doctor rescues her. Of, of course. course. 
And then that's where we get Chase trying to turn it back on and compost the doctor. And then the doctor gets out and Chase falls in and bloody, bloody, blah. I can't imagine that scene with the doctor throwing him in. That is no. just the least doctory thing ever. Yeah. I just sit there. I'm like, that would have been the most gruesome thing the doctor has done. He's just going to leave it to firing a gun and trying to break a guy's neck. He'll just leave it at that. <laughs> All right. So they get out and the crinoid is destroyed. And we have one of my favorite scenes, which I think is incredibly reminiscent of the Avengers, when Sir Colin asks the doctor if he'll address the Royal Horticultural Society. <laughs> 100% something that would happen to Steed. Well, first off, the doctor says that he's like the president of some like intergalactic, some <laughs> sort of botany. I, it was one of those things where I was like, sometimes I hate when they do that, when they make the doctor some like bigger thing in the grand universe when we all know that the doctor doesn't want to do all that right i mean it's president of some botanical society it's not like he's you know yeah president of the universe or anything still it's probably as hard to get of a title as it is to like have a star named after you <laughs> he probably just has to show up make a speech occasionally he doesn't have any real power he's just the figurehead <laughs> what happened in all those times when he wasn't able to steer the tardis He'll get there eventually. I mean, he's a time traveler. No, no real power. <laughs> if you only could comprehend the power of the intergalactic <laughs> horticultural society. Hey, man, they regulate the sale of crinoid pods. <laughs> oh, man. oh, dear. All right. I also love how the doctor offers Sir Colin a trip in the TARDIS. And I love how he was like, I would accept, except my wife. I was like, oh. <laughs> Can you imagine Sir Colin as like Next a Harry like companion yes, for, for a season? He would be killed in his first adventure. <laughs> it would be amazing. <laughs> so we end up with the TARDIS back in Antarctica and not in Cassiopeia. Whoops. It felt very overacted, I guess, at forced. the very end. Yeah, it was very forced. Very forced, a tremendous tonal shift. <laughs> It's like, no, we didn't just mulch two or three people a couple episodes back. Oh, not even a couple of episodes yeah, back, ten minutes yeah, back. Exactly. It feels like a sitcom ending. If only they should have... You, know, you should almost expect the freeze, the frame. freeze frame yeah. with them holding their thumbs up and smiling broadly. <laughs> yeah. That's the end of the serial. We're going to end this as abruptly as the serial ended. Before we get into scoring, Camp Count, I said we'd get back to this. I feel like this is campy enough to earn quite a significant yes. number of points here. What are we going with, guys? I'm giving Chase a five. Yeah, I think it's really only Chase that's campy, mm -hmm. especially during his DJ set. <laughs> I did call out one point for Scorby as well, mm -hmm. so we'll add that up to six. All right. Let's go ahead and rate this one. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't we have to do a count on Hinchcliffe women count, or did we already yeah. cover oh, that? Oh, yeah. We, we did briefly we... mention that, but okay. yes, yeah. we do get the one. Right. Yep. Okay. The person who has the pleasure of scoring this one first is Julie. Oh, man. You know how much I love that. This was a lot of fun. I like the fact that they didn't just try to stretch it out. They made a prequel, so to speak, because then we weren't just dragged out this whole nonsense at Chase's Manor House, although those were fun. Direction was so good. I'm very sad that this is going to be Dougie's last venture. The acting was good. The villains were good. There's really not that bad to it. Most of the time, the music's good. There's one or two moments where it's like, okay, music, you overdid it a little bit. And it is a six-parter, so despite them splitting it up how they did, it was still a little long. But I enjoyed it a lot. 
I'm going to give it eight crazy old weird ass ladies out of ten. <laughs> Riley, over to you. I enjoyed the scope of this, going from Antarctica to English Manor. It wasn't as pat as I thought it would be at six episodes. I would say the whole serial though felt incredibly silly because of the motivation of Chase, which I've hit on several times, and his campy demeanor. But, you know, despite that silliness, there's a real darkness to this that comes through. I mean, we have the gruesome compost machine, Chase's uh, misanthropy, Scorby's complete lack of remorse. I mean, he's a cold-blooded killer. I wasn't bored, but I didn't really enjoy myself despite... Once again, the Doctor and Sarah Jane being at the top of their game. So I'm going to just give this six and a half mean green mothers from outer space. Wow. That's a lot lower than I was expecting from you, Riley. Yeah, me too. Yeah. All right, Don, bring it back. (laughs) Um, Not going to say too much, mainly because my voice is thrashed, but I really enjoyed this one. Despite it being a six-parter, I was never bored. So I think that they got the pacing right. It kept moving. I thought Chase was delightfully insane. The Doctor and Sarah were both on their A-game, and it touches upon things I like. Monsters, insane rich people, <laughs> riffs on Thief of the World. I'm giving it nine homicidal rubegas out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> and then, Don, I think you and I are very, very much on the same page. I really enjoyed this. It's pretty dark. There are a few moments of humor, but they are few and far between. I think the characters are fantastic. Love Scorby. Love Dunbar. Love Harrison Chase, who's just insane. Amelia Ducart, brilliant. I love the concept of the crinoid, which, you know, is something that terrified me as a kid, but as an adult, I find kind of fascinating. And although it was a six-parter, its structure didn't really make it feel like one. I think that was probably helped by the fact that I watched two parts maybe a few days before I watched the remaining four. So it was almost like I did get a little bit of a prequel or a prelude, I guess. So yeah, overall, I'm going to give this... Nine Scorby Dunbars out of ten, <laughs> which gives us a total for the serial, an average of 8.13. This one did pretty well. That brings us to the end of the episode. In our next regular episode, we'll be back with our season 13 retrospective. But in the meantime, as always, thank you so much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Riley Schreck, Julie Filipek, myself, Anthony Williams, and for the very last time, Don Smith. This episode, Scorby Dorby Doo, was recorded on Wednesday the 18th of January 2023. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watchers4D. And you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, keep your loved ones close. You never know when something you do with them might be the last time you get to do it.